All right, I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day today. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that you're faithful to us. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom to learn about your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to think clearly about the text of Scripture and authorial intent and help us to understand that we've been saved from these devastating judgments all by the work of your Son. Let us always be grateful for that. But also, Lord, motivate us for obedience. Motivate us to be about your gospel because of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we had left off, I'll turn my desk here, in the book of Revelation, we left off at the sixth bowl. And remember, we had all these judgments that are going to be the worst judgments on the planet, and they culminate in the battle that's known as Har-Megiddon, the battle at the hill of Megiddo. And so what we were wrestling with last time is here, all the nations are being gathered together to a place that in the Hebrew is called Har-Megiddon. So what we're doing is we're wrestling with where exactly is that. Remember, Har in Hebrew means mount or hill. Sometimes it refers to mountain. Megiddo is the place in the Jezreel Valley where more battles perhaps happened there in the Old Testament than anywhere else. And so the traditional idea has been this is the plain of Megiddo where all the enemies of God will be gathered against Israel. The problem with that is the Apostle John does not use the term Valley of Megiddo. He uses the term hill. And properly understood, there is no hill. So we're wrestling with what exactly is he saying. If he just said Megiddo, we would just say it's in the Jezreel Valley. But because he uses the hill, it raises a little bit more conjecture. Some scholars think that the hill of Megiddo is Mount Carmel. That's the location, of course, where Elijah called fire down upon the false prophets of Baal. The reason why some think it's Mount Carmel is because it is the most prominent hill or mountain in the Jezreel Valley region. Um, I disagree with that. The simple reason is if Mount Carmel had been intended, you'd think that under the inspiration of the Spirit, John simply would have just said it. There's nowhere in any literature that we have that Mount Carmel was known as Mount Megiddo. Okay? The other take on it was from a man named Michael Heiser and others that have had the same idea, and that is if you amend the Greek text, you can get it to mean not Megiddo, but Moeth, which has to do with the amount of assembly. The problem with that is you have to amend the Greek text, which is giving you Hebrew, and there's no warrant in amending the Greek text. So I don't think that that has any merit to it. The other option was simply to take it generically, to say, well, the hill of Megiddo simply means the mountains of Israel. And the mountains of Israel, of course, were prophesied in Isaiah and in Ezekiel 38 to be the location of some battle. I will talk about Gog and Magog when we get to it. And this famous battle, perhaps, is what's being referred to on the mountains of Israel. The problem with that view, again, is I think John just would have said that. He would have said the mountains of Israel. So I'm going to give you a proposal, and I'm not claiming that I'm right. This is just the, a proposal to you, and you can take it as you see fit. But what I'm going to contend is that the Har Megiddon, the reason why John uses that is I believe he's describing Jerusalem. And so the gathering together is not the beginning of the battle, but the end of the battle where they're eventually going to culminate. They're being gathered together to a point, and that's Jerusalem. 
And the reason it's referred to as the Mount of Megiddo is because it's John's way of getting us back to the famous text in Zechariah 12 through 14, where all the nations would gather against Jerusalem, but it would end, in a sense, obviously with Messiah defeating the enemies, but also with this national repentance where they mourn for Messiah as he intervenes for them, and they'll mourn as they did for Josiah, the king who had brought in all those reforms, as they mourned for him at Megiddo. That's where he fell. So that's my proposal. Now let me show you why I think that there may be some merit to it. Let's look at the Zechariah background to this battle that's being described in Revelation 16. First of all, as I even put the text up, I'm looking at Zechariah 12, 2 through 3. Notice how many times Jerusalem is referred to here. Notice what God says. And again, I think that this is the battle that's being referred to at the sixth bowl. God said here, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Notice that last line, dear ones, in verse 3. All the nations are going to be gathered against where? Well, against Jerusalem. Well, what are we reading about at the sixth bowl? Well, all the nations, I believe, are being gathered against Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem is the issue. So as we continue on in Zechariah 12, notice Zechariah 12, 9 through 11, it says, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Now notice the purpose of this grace being poured upon them. By God's Spirit, it says, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So let's just stop there and look at the underlying portion. Remember back in John 19, I think it's verse 37 if I recall, John cites the first portion of this at Jesus' first advent, at his crucifixion. So he cites that where it says, so that they will look on me whom they pierced. But he deliberately leaves off, and they will mourn for him. Okay, why? Because that awaits for the second advent. There wasn't a national mourning, a national repentance of Israel at the first advent of Christ and at his crucifixion. So what it reminded me of, and in fact, I want you to turn your Bibles there, if you will, um, just so you can see it. In fact, I didn't even put the passage in my notes. I should have, but turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 4, 18 through 19. I just want you to see a precedent where Jesus himself will cite one part of a passage and he'll deliberately leave off a second part that is to be fulfilled at the second advent. Okay? So notice here, in fact, I'm going to have to turn my own Bible, I think, because I didn't put it in my notes. But turn your Bibles again to Luke 4, 18 through 19. In fact, if somebody has it before me, if Bob, you have it, feel free to read, or uh, Eric, if you get it before me. Oh, thanks, Nancy. Nancy's going to read uh, Luke four eighteen through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover of sight to the blind and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Excellent. So remember the setting, Jesus in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. 
He's preaching here. The, the scroll that he opens up, I believe, was probably divinely appointed. Um, some think it was on a schedule. Whether he selects it or whether it was on a schedule, providentially he's reading from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is all about him. He is the fulfillment of it. But notice in verse 19, he says it was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's directly from Isaiah 61, verse 2. Right after it says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Well, notice Jesus doesn't cite that portion. That's something that's going to be awaiting his second advent. So in the same sense, I think that that's why John cites Zechariah, but he just says, so that they will look on me whom they, they pierced. They'll look upon the one whom they pierced. Okay? But he leaves off the second portion. So the point is there's going to be this national mourning at the second advent of Christ. But notice it's compared to something that had happened in their history. Notice in verse 11, it says, In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, this Hadad Ramon, some think it's an Assyrian storm god. Some think it's a personal name. To me, it may have been related at one time to some false deities, but I believe it's a place. It was a place that was known to the Israelites at the time of the writing, and it really was at the plain of Megiddo. Now, here's the point. Yes, Adam's got something. And uh, I'm not disagreeing with you here. I sure, this is just a proposal, so I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, but just a, a little uh, cultural, historical, uh, geographical background. Yeah. Uh, there, there is actually a, a Tel Megiddo. Uh, tel uh, means hill. And that's through the, it's, it's at the southern, kind of southwestern end of the, uh, of the Jezreel uh, Valley. Yes. Uh, in there, uh, there actually is a hill uh, that guarded, and uh, there were fortifications uh, built there throughout history from the Egyptian times. I mean, maybe it was first, uh, I can't remember if it was Moses II who talks about uh, taking the, the hill of Megiddo. Uh, where the central coastal highway along the, the Mediterranean Sea uh, passed, through the, passed through the land. And so it was a, a critical juncture uh, for c- controlling uh, international traffic uh, from Mesopotamia to the north uh, to Egypt exactly. to, the, uh, to the south. Uh, and there you do read about Josiah uh, going out to meet with Pharaoh, Pharaoh Nico. Nico. Yeah. So there is a hill with fortifications called Megiddo, that does overlook the Jezreel, uh, Jezreel Valley, just for background. And so, you know, uh, maybe that would fit. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you're kind of maybe alluding that he's maybe making uh, kind of a, a connection to Jerusalem and maybe uh, through like metaphorical extension or, or as they're uh, traveling uh, the way. But there were actually uh, three yeah. passes uh, that went through and the eastern one is where uh, the uh, you can read about the Ishmaelites coming and uh, taking Joseph uh, to to Egypt, but it was the central one that was a really critical uh, strategic, military, economic uh, strong, uh, stronghold uh, for uh, for international uh, traffic. So. Yeah, well said. Um, but you know, even notice here. The, here's my my kind of my pushback. Yeah. I agree. There is a tell there. And I'm, I didn't say I'm not disagreeing with you. Right. I'm just saying that there. Uh, there is a hill there that... There is, absolutely. The one issue is, is it 
pronounced enough during the time that John writes in order for it to be called the Hill of Megiddo. Even here in Zachariah's writing, notice it's the Plain of Megiddo. It's referred to as that. And I agree, there was a lot of battles that occurred there because even Solomon had to fortify it to control the trade routes. Um, the issue is, is there a hill at the time that John's writing it? And it's debated. And so I'm just simply saying is if, if it's pronounced enough to be the Hill of Megiddo, well, maybe, then I think that that is an option. Maybe maybe you're talking about the name, but the hill was there. They have uh, yeah. ruins. I mean, the tells, they have layer after layer after layer of fortifications going back yep. well before uh, John's time. And then also a lot of times with geographical landmarks, a lot of times you'll have a metonymy. It's a part-whole connection. And so sometimes the hill of Megiddo, uh, which will be called sometimes can also be identified with, uh, since it's so central, can be identified with uh, the plane and its uh, Well said. And that very well could be the best answer to the the whole issue. Mm -hmm. The one issue that I'm just presenting is if John intends to bring this passage to mind, then he may just simply be referring to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. happened at Jerusalem in this battle is what happened at Megiddo where they mourned for uh, Josiah who died at the hands of Nico. And so that's a proposal... And you know what? They're not even mutually exclusive. Another take is to say, well, the battle begins at the plain of Megiddo. And obviously we know it's going to culminate in Jerusalem. That's how how you get to Jerusalem. Exactly. uh, They they would have to pass through there from the the north. That's the central area. Come down and then uh, they go east up to the uh, the Benjamin Plateau and to the the hill country. Right. Well said. So the issue is, uh, and let me just point out again the mourning. Why were they mourning initially? Well, they were mourning in Zechariah's day that he's referring to because of the loss of Josiah. Well, there's going to be such mourning, it's going to be reminiscent of that. And that's going to happen in Jerusalem as Messiah comes and and when he fights against the enemies of Israel. And so perhaps John is referring to Jerusalem as the hill of Megiddo simply to make that connection, that it is the mountain. That is, at the end of the day, where all the nations are going to be gathered is against Jerusalem. But it doesn't prohibit also them from being gathered in the plain, the Jezreel plain. Yes. Uh, Eric, I went to Israel in 1983. Yeah. And they took us out there, and I saw no mountain, a valley. I saw a vast valley, and they were raising cotton in it at the time. Oh, sure, sure. But they also said that the um, airfields for the Israeli Air Force were out there. Yeah. So as a place to for the armies to come against, it certainly is a big, broad area where you could gather an incredible number of people. In fact, I remember reading that Napoleon said that he saw this valley and he said, what a place to have a battle. (laughs) Amen. In fact, when you stand at Mount Carmel and you look down, what's very interesting is you look at the Megiddo airfield. It was really strange to me as an American pilot. I didn't see any hangars. And the reason why they don't have hangars is as soon as an F-16 lands, they put it on a a platform, it's an elevator, and they go down below ground because Megiddo is in artillery range with long-range artillery from the Syrian army. So if the Syrians really wanted to make an issue of it, they can shell Megiddo um, airfield. So that's how close it is, absolutely. Yeah. And just uh, one quick comment with, it was there's Gail, right? Yeah. yeah who was in uh, Israel. You also had a lot of uh, great, uh, great defeats in the period of judges with yeah. like Deborah and Barak uh, right. in that valley. Uh, and you even have a lot of allusions like in, uh, in Isaiah, going into Isaiah 11 and such, yes. where he talks about how he's going to uh, do it again. Uh, exactly. And you know, time. what's so yeah. beautiful about that is the Barak and Deborah connection happened in the hills surrounding Megiddo. Mm-hmm. And that could be what John is referring to as well. Maybe it's just the hills 
plural surrounding Megiddo because that's where Barak and Deborah defeated the forces that were arrayed against Israel at the time. So that could be as well. And then all we'd have to do is, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the hill would be hills, like the hills of Israel thesis that some And that was also with, uh, you had the, uh, who is the general, uh, Sisra, and then you had the king of uh, Hatzor, who, who was the king of the Canaanites. There's like the central yes. uh, city that they're looking at. So That's right. And that's uh, where the fortifications were given at Megiddo. So you're right. So the, the, the Zechariah, I mean, that's, that's uh, key. That's central. Yeah, absolutely. So again, here's the, what we're wrestling with is it's either going to be in Jerusalem or it's in the plain of Megiddo. And I think that that's the best take that we can get to in this text. I don't think it's Mount Carmel. I don't think it's the amount of assembly which would be an allusion to where the watchers came down in First Enoch, I think we can boil it down to say it's either Jerusalem itself or it's going to be literally in the Jezreel Valley at this site where this tell is. It's going to be one or the other. But if it is Jerusalem, then what he's simply referring to is it's the mountain characterized by what happened at Megiddo. Just as in Vietnam, how many remember there was a famous movie about this battle? It's called Hamburger Hill. Now, the hill in Vietnam was never really called Hamburger Hill, but it was characterized by a meat grinder that our troops went through. So it became known as the hill that produced hamburger. It was Hamburger Hill. And in the same way, perhaps John is saying that this mountain is really Jerusalem, but it's characterized by what happened at Megiddo, where there's going to be a national mourning as they mourned for, as they mourned for the loss of Josiah. They're going to mourn for their Messiah as he comes to defeat their enemies. So either way, we know that this is literally going to occur. It's going to occur in history. It's going to be at a geographical location in Israel. The battle may begin in the Jezreel Valley, but it will culminate in Jerusalem. You see how many times Jerusalem is referred to. That's where it's going to be. Now, one other point that I would make, when we look at the chronology of the book of Revelation, when we're in Revelation 16, we have the seventh bowl that we're going to start looking at today. When you get to chapter 17 and 18, you have an interlude. And the interlude has to do with the destruction of Babylon. Immediately when that's over in chapter 19, verse 11, what do you have happen? You have the Messiah, Jesus, coming down. Well, where is he coming down? Well, the location is Jerusalem. That's where he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and fights. Well, where does that happen? It happens in Jerusalem. So the last known location that's referred to prior to him coming down is the text that we were reading about at the sixth bowl, at Harmageddon. That's where they're gathered. Now, again, it could be them being gathered at the Jezreel Valley and they come down, but that's the last known mention. And so that may be another indication that Jerusalem was intended. Either way, it's literally going to happen. And this is the battle that was foretold in Zechariah 12 through 14, and Jesus is going to win. So with that, any questions? And if you don't have any, I'm going to move on to the seventh bowl. Do you have any more comments? All right, I'm going to pull up the seventh bowl here, and we'll get started. The seventh bowl, as we begin to look into it, is going to be the fulfillment of all of God's wrath. So this is verses 17 through 21. And I want to begin by talking about the extent of the seventh bowl. And just to make a few comments in the beginning of this, first of all, I want you to remember that each of the seventh of the series of seals, trumpets, and the bowl judgments open up to a next series. And what I mean by that is, 
Remember, you have the first series of judgments are the seals. When you get to the seventh seal, it opens up, and it consists then of the next judgments, that is the six trumpet judgments. When you get to the seventh trumpet, it opens up, and that judgment, the seventh trumpet, consists of the judgments that happen in the bowls. Well, the question arises, when you get to the seventh bowl, what does that open up to? And I think it's deliberately left hanging because you see that this wrath really goes on unto eternity. The wrath at the seventh bowl has various components to it, but it culminates in the lake of fire. So it's my contention that the seventh bowl is deliberately left open because it's an eternal wrath. Yes, the wrath that's described here technically is going to have to do with earthquakes and hail, but it also has to do with the eternal lake of fire that we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter 20. So I think that that's the best understanding. The seventh bowl is depicted as extending into the eternal states. Okay? In fact, when you get to Revelation 22.5, that's the last reference to what occurs in the eternal states. Then after that, you have an exhortation from Jesus through the apostle John. So I think that we should see the seventh bowl is extending on into eternity. So what I'm claiming is then is that this is synonymous the seventh bowl, with the everlasting nature of the broad day of the Lord. Remember I talked about how the day of the Lord can be understood in two different ways. It can be understood on the one hand as a 24-hour day when the Messiah comes to judge the enemies at the battle of overcalling Armageddon. But it also can be referred to as a broad period of time. Now let me show you why. I'll give you a passage from 2 Peter. Notice 2 Peter 3. Notice what's, what's Peter talking about. He says the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is a significant passage because here the apostle Peter, I believe, is referring to the broad day of the Lord. Notice he begins talking about the fact that it comes like a thief. Does everyone see that? So there's no warning He comes unexpected. That's exactly what Jesus said regarding his parousia, his coming. His coming, according to Matthew 24, was like a thief. So if the day of the Lord comes like a thief, and Jesus' coming is like a thief, they both both have to happen coterminously. Otherwise, one would cease to be a thief. You would have a warning. Are you with me? So that's why I believe the coming of Jesus for the church begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. After all, he has to spare his people the wrath of God. That's exactly what God did with Noah. It's exactly what he did with Lot. That's the precedent in Scripture. It's the promises of God. But notice in Peter, the 2 Peter 3.10 passage, he talks about the day of the Lord also that comes like a thief, but he also connects it to the heavens that will pass away. When do we read in the book of Revelation that the heavens will pass away? Well, that's not until the eternal states come in Revelation chapter 21. It's after the, what we refer to as the millennial kingdom. You're going to be given a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. So realize he has spanned from the inception of Daniel's 70th week all the way through the millennial kingdom. And for Peter, that was nothing. It's all the day of the Lord. So that's why we have to see it as a broad day. It's not a cop-out to say that the day of the Lord is a broad period of time. Certainly, that's what the biblical writers typically refer to it as. Now, the other thing I would point out is that the day of the Lord 
should be understood as two things. If you want to remember what is the day of the Lord about, it's about two things. Number one, God judging his enemies. And number two, God saving his people finally and forever. And in a sense, you could say the same thing, him judging his enemies finally and forever. It's about those two things. And everything that has occurred in biblical history is a precursor and a foreshadowing of what occurs in the day of the Lord. Okay? So the seventh bowl then, I think, depicts this eternal nature of the wrath that's going to come. Yes, it opens and there are stages, but one day it culminates in the lake of fire. So let's begin at looking at the inception of the wrath here, the seventh bowl. We see it happens with an earthquake. Revelation 16, 17 through 18, it says, Then the seventh bowl, excuse me, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had been not since there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Now, dear ones, notice you have the seventh angel. Remember, all the angels have been pouring out the various bowls. Well, now the seventh angel pours out his bowl, and it's upon the air. Notice in the box, this phrase, upon the air, really seems to indicate that this is the most pervasive of all of the judgments. That is, you can't be hidden from it. Remember, there are some judgments that were poured out upon the sea. There were some poured out upon the rivers. There are some that are poured upon the land and the vegetation. But this is poured out upon the very air. It's so pervasive, it's going to affect every single person. And I want you to think of the seventh bowl as being in conjunction with what Jesus is going to do at the Battle of Armageddon. Remember, all the nations are being gathered to the place of Armageddon. So this is happening at that time. So there's unbelievable wrath that's occurring as these nations are coming against Israel and Jerusalem. And it includes as you're going to see this mighty earthquake. So it's upon the air that shows us it's pervasive. It can't be hidden from. But then notice, he says also in the end of verse 17, this angel, it is done. Now, what's interesting is this is a perfect tense form of ginnomai. Perfect tense typically has to do with things that happened and are perfectly completed in the past. But the emphasis is usually on present-day ramifications or significance. Well, what's interesting about the perfect tense being used here, I think, is that the indication is that all of the wrath that we've seen occurring in the seals and the trumpets are now reaching their culmination in this final bowl judgment. In a sense, this is always going to be with us because the wrath that's coming is going to be eternal. So what I'm saying is in context, when we read this, it's very significant. The seventh bowl, it is done. And if you look at the seventh bowl, and the, the, what I've been mentioning is that it opens up and there's no end to it, how long is the eternal lake of fire? It's eternal. And so when God says it is done, don't think of it in the sense that it's terminated and the wrath is all behind us. There's no more wrath. It is done in the sense that it is culminated and it is always with us. That's what the context shows us. And I think the, the perfect tense is a good way of illustrating it as well. It has ramifications that will always be with us as the wrath of God will always be upon the enemies of God. Notice in verse 18, it says, And there were flashes of lightning 
in sounds and peals of thunder. Now remember, this is the last time I'm going to say this. I've said it four times, I think, throughout our studies. But this is significant for our debates in eschatology. Now here's why. Many people, for instance, those in the pre-wrath movement, those in the mid-trib movement, will try to claim that some of the sealed judgments are not the wrath of God. Okay, but this tells us that that's not so. Why? Because the reference to the lightning and the sounds and peals of thunder, that's storm theophany. And that's a storm theophany that we see in connection with the throne room of God back in Revelation 4, 5. So we see the storm theophany happening in the throne room. Then at the seventh seal, at the seventh trumpet, now at the seventh bowl, you always have that same storm theophany. And what John is doing that for is to show you that it all comes from the throne room of God. Who is behind all this wrath? It's God. So if we're going to say that, if we see that connection clearly, then we don't say, well, some of the seals are actually just the wrath of Satan or just the wrath of man. We're going to see the connection that John himself is making and say, no, it's the wrath of God. Now, why is that important? Because if the seals are the wrath of God, the trumpets are the wrath of God, the bulls are the wrath of God, well, weren't you and I as believers promised exemption from the wrath of God? We were. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, what was Paul's topic? The day of the Lord. He says, you know, the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety, sun destruction is going to come upon them and they shall not escape. But when you get to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, in regarding the day of the Lord, he says, but you have not been destined to wrath, but what? To obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we've been promised exemption from that. So the point is that structure, the flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder at age 7, seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, shows us that all of it's the wrath of God that emanates from the throne room of God. I think that's a structure that we have to see. Now, notice here the result then of pouring out this bowl. We see in red, it says, And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Many of you know that when I teach on the Olivet Discourse and Jesus says it's the worst time ever, I've made the point that you can't have the worstest, right? You have the worst and that's it. This is the worst. If you want to know when that worst earthquake is ever going to occur, you got it right here. It's going to be the worst ever. In fact, so bad is it, as we're going to see, it's going to create topographical changes that are very lasting upon the earth. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some earthquakes that have had some topographical changes, but this is going to be a doozy where you're going to have Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem elevated. Many of the islands will fall away. Just a short thought. When you you see this great earthquake uh, like there's never been or never will be, does an atomic bomb pop in your mind? Atomic uh, warfare? Um, you know what? I, I, I don't think so. I, um, I, I think it's going to be an earthquake. But I, I know probably there's been some conjecture by some as to how it, it occurs. I take it that it's just a regular supernatural, good old-fashioned earthquake that God brings about at the end. Um, anything beyond that, I would just be speculating. I, I think that's how it will come about. So, um, yeah, I don't know. If, does that help, Ed? Okay, yeah, yep. 
Yeah, it's the worst, exactly. Either way, it's the worst, yep. And I think, you know, backing up or, or kind of emphasizing what you're saying, this is the wrath of God here. Yeah. This is where we're at the wrath of God. It's not where God has abandoned man to his own sin nature, where he's going to drop atomic bombs on himself, because we know that that sort of thing will happen. But this is God's wrath here, right? Well said, Eric. That brings up a very good point, and that is, again, all the judgments and the seals, the trumpets and the bulls are seen as God's wrath, but he does use different means. So, for example, in the opening seal judgments, he is using the nations. They're instruments of his wrath. At the fourth seal, he sends sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Those four items were used by God to pour wrath upon Judah, according to Ezekiel 14, 19 through 20. So he does use the wrath of the nations. Think about Isaiah 10. God says he's going to use Assyria as the vessel of his wrath against his own people. And when we get to Revelation 17, we're going to see that he's even using Antichrist and his kingdom as instruments of wrath against the world. But you're absolutely right that in the later judgments, these are things that are cosmic in nature that man really can't do. And so it starts kind of with God using the the men and what men do to one another is his wrath. But then it culminates in him using the cosmic forces against people. These are things that humanity can't control. Um, as, As powerful as we are, we can't control the movement of the tectonic plates or whatever you call them for earthquakes yeah so well said i think that's a very important uh point to make yeah thank you so very good now the other thing i think that this in red notice i'm just focusing on the red here where it says there will be a great earthquake such as never occurred what i want you to think about is this may also be a reference back to what was promised in haggai now the only reason i talk about haggai 2 is because it's referenced in hebrews so first of all let us read hebrews And I'm going to show you why I'm referencing it, because it talks about this final shaking that will occur. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 12, 26 through 27. Again, Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 27. And what's interesting about this quote that I'm going to show you from Hebrews is the author of Hebrews seemed to believe that there was a final shaking that would occur. But we'll talk about it in its its historical context with Haggai, because that's what he's citing. Hebrews 12, 26 through 27, the writer of Hebrews here is going to quote from Haggai chapter 2. He says, And his voice, talking about God's voice, shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Now, the reason this comes to my mind is because in the prophet Haggai, that's what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from, he's talking about a final shaking that would occur. And I don't think we have to take it as just merely uh, literal or merely symbolic. I think it's both. This literally will happen. It is symbolic. And the writer of Hebrews certainly is connecting this to the destruction of the created order, but the reception of an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. But what I want to do is show you why he's citing this and what he's doing with the text of Haggai. So please turn your Bibles to Haggai 2, 6 through 8. 
please turn your Bibles there because that's what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from. So what we're going to wrestle with as we turn to Haggai 2 is when the writer of Hebrews is citing this, is he simply playing fast and loose with the Old Testament? Or is, does he see a pattern that is inherent within the Old Testament that he's developing? And I think that that's exactly the latter that the writer of Hebrews is doing. Now, let me just set the stage for Haggai 2, verses 6 through 8 here. Remember, the people of Israel, this is around 520 B.C., they're very dispirited because the order had gone out to rebuild the temple. The foundation was laid, but the foundation merely laid there, and there were, for lack of better, there were weeds cropping up because the work wasn't being completed. And the reason why was Artaxerxes I had actually put a decree together saying that the Israelites could not continue the rebuilding project. You can read about that in Ezra 4. Well, we know that that doesn't last. In fact, Darius, the Persian king, allows them to continue to rebuild. So here, Haggai is written to encourage them to still be about the Lord's work and that, in fact, it will be done. And so listen to what he says to encourage them. This is Haggai 2.6. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. Now, what's interesting is I believe that the near-term fulfillment of that promise is seen later in Haggai 2, 21 through 22, and we'll read that in a minute. But what God is showing is he's going to use the upheaval of the nations to bring about a restored Israel, a restored temple. And so he is using this idea of shaking the nations to talk about the destruction of God's enemies and how he's going to bring about his promises, restoration of Israel, restoration of the temple. Now, the reason why the writer of Hebrews is using it is because I believe that there is a last time shaking. It'll be a literal shaking. It'll be a shaking of the creations themselves. And God is also going to destroy all of his political opponents that are arrayed against him, just like he would by using the Medo-Persians, by using the Greeks against them, the Romans against them, successive kingdoms. Just as he did it through history, he's going to do it again, literally, by shaking the heavens and the earth, as it were, with a mighty earthquake. And so here's what I want to do. I want you to see that this idea of having a mighty earthquake associated with the day of the Lord is, I think, to be taken literally. Notice here in Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13 is certainly a passage that has to do with the day of the Lord. Notice it says in Isaiah 13, 8, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Now, let me just stop there for a moment in verse 8. Notice the term pains in the Greek Septuagint. That's where we get our term odin. Odin is the term that Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse. Remember, he gives you some signs, and he says these are the beginning of birth pains. Remember, the day of the Lord comes suddenly, Paul says, like Odin, birth pangs upon a woman and they shall not escape. Okay? So I think that that is what they're borrowing from. They're borrowing from Isaiah 13. Therefore, they're talking about the same time period, the future day of the Lord. Notice verse 11 of Isaiah 13. 
It says, thus I will punish the world for its evil. Now, what's interesting is he could have just talked about the land, Eretz. Um, how many have heard of the newspaper Har Eretz? I think I'm saying that correctly. It's the land. It's got the definite article and then the term for land. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. so it, most people have heard of that. Well, here the term that's used isn't just the land, it's Tavel, I believe, if I remember the Hebrew. Is that correct, Adam? Tavel, the whole inhabited world uh, in Hebrew. Does that sound correct? Okay. Well, I think that that's the term that's being used here. So my point in saying that is realize this isn't just a local judgment that came upon Israel. This is a worldwide judgment that's going to happen in the day of the Lord. That's what helps us understand this is the day of the Lord that we're referring to in the book of Revelation. It's a worldwide issue. So thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and base, abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. So the point is, Isaiah is promising the shaking of the heavens and the earth. I think it's a, probably referenced this earthquake in the day that God pours out his wrath. And it's a wrath that's going to come upon the whole world. Yes, Luann. Maybe this is kind of a bunny trail you don't want to get into. But, when, but I think it is a kind of an interesting one in Isaiah when it says the world, I'll punish the world. But universalists will use something like John 3.16, God so loved the world, to think that everyone's going to be saved eventually. Good point. Very good point. Let me just play with that. I th I, and I think, and tell me if I'm not getting at your point, but it's a very interesting point. When it says that he's going to judge the world, it doesn't mean every person without exclusion. In the same way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe him should not perish but have everlasting life doesn't mean every single person without exception. Is that what you're pointing to? Yeah, very good. And that's how we use language. Um, if we use, if, let's say we use the saying, well, everyone was at the party. Do we mean literally the whole world without exception? Not a single person was missing, was at the party? Well, no, we just mean a lot of people and everybody we knew kind of, right? In the same way, though, and this is a worldwide judgment. That's the scope. But it doesn't mean every single person without exception. Certainly there are going to be believers will be exempt from that. So very well said. It's a very good connection. Thank you. Yeah, any, anybody else? Yeah, Jim. I still can't understand. Uh, I can understand why the world would be shaken because it's evil, but I can't understand. Oops, hold on one second. I'm sorry. We'll get it on. Uh, I can understand the shaking in uh, whatever of the world because of all its evil, but w there's no evil in heaven, so why would that tremble? Yeah, very good point. And I think that there, that does show that, look, there is a little bit of metaphoric license, isn't there? There is, there is a shaking that will occur. But yet, yeah, in what way does heaven shake? Well, we don't know. But the point is, is that God is going to pour out his wrath and that this is going to be something that is so cataclysmic. It's as if heavens and earth shake, right? So sometimes when we use the term heavens, we don't mean literally the throne room of God. But we're just talking about it's massive. Heavens and earth uh, are going to shake, right? Yeah, Adam. Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. Uh, and even just the, 
the basic world space with the earth, sometimes just talking about the, the sky, the air, the atmosphere. Yes. Not, not necessarily, I mean, Paul. The went, throne room of God. He went to the third heavens uh, beyond, beyond space, I mean, to, all the way to, uh, to where God dwells. Right. And manifests uh, his presence before his holy angels and such. And so there are different levels with the heavens and just where you see all this uh, theophany language of, of lightning and thunder and, uh, and fire and uh, all of this and the, the earth quaking. I mean, what happens when, uh, when thunder and lightning violently surge throughout mm. the, the sky and the atmosphere? I mean, things shake. Yes. It's, it's violent. So. <laughs> they do. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Yeah. So does that help, Jim? So um, either... What he's, what he's simply using is it's a metaphor, and it's just so violent the heavens and earth are shaking, but it could also refer to the, the heavens in the sense that the atmosphere of earth will be shaken as well. And, you know, I remember being a pilot at times and trying to maneuver around thunderstorms, and we're going to talk about hail that's unbelievable, but we're going to talk about 108 pound, 108 to 130 pound, pounds of hail coming, these, that's going to be coming in this judgment. That's bad hail. I've flown around a lot of hail. <laughs> that's about as bad as it, I, you know, that's unbelievably bad. I remember I saw a storm one time down in Waterloo. And in our airplane, what we had is we had, a, we had EFIS tubes or electronic flight instruments. And so we had a radar. We could scan and see this really, you know, we could see the weather. So what your radar is doing is your radar wave is bouncing off of hail or water, and then it bounces back to your aircraft. And the more intense it is, the redder and darker it becomes on your radar screen. Well, we were flying, and I don't remember where we were going, but me and this guy were flying together, and we're going down with a load of passengers. And I remember seeing this cell that I've never seen before. And it was going right at, if I, if I recall correctly, I think it was Waterloo, Iowa. And it was the darkest I've ever seen. And as I looked out the window, you know you've seen lightning. We've all seen it. But this is lightning where every second you had two flashes. So if you said 1-1,000, you had a flash, flash, and it was constant. Flash, 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 flash. It was like that. Lightning I've never seen. Well, this was heading towards Waterloo, and on our screen, we have a little dot. Says, it shows ALO as the designator for Waterloo, if I remember. Or uh, Disregard if that's incorrect. It's been a lot of years, but I think that was the designator. So anyway, I'm seeing the storm coming, and I told the guy I was flying with, I said, hey, once the storm goes through, they're going to erase that off our screen. Waterloo won't even exist. It was so bad. But my point is... That's the kind of shaking that's going to occur. To have hailstones of 108 to 130 pounds, to have an earthquake that the whole world has never sensed before, that's the kind of cosmic upheaval that's going to be occurring at the seventh bowl. Yes. And, and just uh, one, one last thought. With that, in, in Isaiah, yeah. you, you see this worldwide judgment, and oftentimes uh, when God manifests his presence uh, in a judgment for his enemies and salvation for his people uh, in the Exodus, in the Song of Moses, uh, in the Song of Deborah and Barak when he gave deliverance from the Canaanites. It talks about God, God shaking. The, the heavens shook. Yes. Uh, the earth shook as God brings deliverance to his people. And here with Isaiah uh, 13, uh, this section comes to an end in 24 uh, through 27 with worldwide cataclysmic judgment right. on both uh, the, evil, uh, the evil spirits and the demonic uh, and also on humans who are in rebellion against him, even connecting it all the way back to the, the flood with Noah. And so no one's exempt from this. Adam, thank you for making that connection to Isaiah 24 through 27. Some scholars like to refer to that as the little apocalypse in Isaiah. And remember I read to you, I don't know when it was, just a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 26? 
And you saw in New Testament eschatology, there's going to be a resurrection. The people of God are hidden. The wrath comes. That's exactly what Adam is pointing to, that this all culminates there. And so this is all about the day of the Lord. And in the day of the Lord, there's going to be such cosmic upheaval, the world has never seen anything like it. And that's why I think it's so foolhardy to say, well, these things just happened in 70 A.D. Really? Really? It happened all in 70 A.D. or it happens through church history. It's, it's absurd. And this, again, is pointing us to the futurist understanding of the book of Revelation. So, okay, with that, let's keep going here. Now, this earthquake is going to be so significant, we're going to see topographical changes. Verses 19 through 20, it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Wow. That's some big changes. Now, I want you to, first of all, we got to do a little interpretation here. Notice it talks about the great city was split. And we have to wrestle with, well, what city is he referring to? That is John. Well, some like to claim that this is synonymous with Babylon. But I think there's clear evidence that the great city is not Babylon. It's a reference to Jerusalem. The first indication, exegetically, is notice it's distinguished with the cities of the nations. So the cities of the nations, notice in the underlying portion, would be the Gentile nations, as opposed to that of the great city, which implied would be the nations of the Israelites, or the, excuse me, the city of the Israelites, which would be Jerusalem. Okay? Now, the other point is if the great city was, in fact, Babylon, he could have simply pointed that out. The great city, namely Babylon, was split in three parts. He could have done something like that. Now, the other reason we know the great city is Jerusalem is because it's referred to as such back in Revelation 11.8. So whenever we get confused about interpretation, remember, one of our rules is to see how John uses it, see how it's used in the Old Testament. And if it's a symbol, uh, remember, John usually tells us, right? He says that the dragon was Satan, etc. But here, we have a clear usage earlier that the great city was Jerusalem. Revelation 11.8, it says their, body, their dead bodies, talking about the witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically, or spiritually you could say, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, let me ask the question, where was the Lord crucified? Was it Babylon? Er, Jerusalem, right? So the great city is clearly Jerusalem. All right, so the, the great city then is going to be split into three different parts. Now, what this is indicating is part and parcel to this earthquake that is going to be so horrific, there's going to be topographical changes made to the earth. That's how significant it is. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 2, verse 2. Let's look at Isaiah 2, 2. I, w- I want to show you some passages that indicate in the last days when God brings about this kingdom that's going to be brought about by Messiah... There's going to be topographical changes, seemingly, that are made to the earth. Isaiah 2, 2. Isaiah 2, 2. Notice it says, Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Now, there's 
three different ways I think we can understand Isaiah 2. One, we can say, well, it's just symbolic that the fact that the house of Yahweh will be established as chief of the mountains and that it will be raised above the hills just means it's going to be the most significant. We can also take it as literal to say, no, there's literally going to be topographical changes that will take place. And I think there's a third option is that it's both. It's literal and symbolic. And I think it's the latter. I think literally there's going to be topographical changes and it's also symbolic that there's one king and he, he, he reigns in the highest mountain. It's in Zion. And so if you want to go up to the sea of the great king, you go up to the highest mountain for he's the greatest king on the earth. So I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Okay. Now, one other text, and I won't cite it for the sake of time, but remember in Zechariah 14, when the Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, what happens to the Mount of Olives? It splits in two. Now, again, that's linked to that battle that we're reading about in both the 6th and the 7th bowl. Again, we'll see it come to fruition in Revelation 19.11 where the Messiah comes down. So there's topographical changes even in Jerusalem itself. Uh, Micah 4.1, by the way, you can just jot that down. It says the same thing as Isaiah 2.2. There's going to be these topographical changes. Dear brothers and sisters, literally, I think Jerusalem will be elevated above the other mountains and it will be also symbolic that there's one God who reigns and the nations will flow to it and they'll bring him glory. So that's quite an earthquake. How many earthquakes do you know of that have leveled mountains where the islands are done? You can tell that this is going to be a massive cosmic event, cataclysmic event, I should say, that is unlike anything we've ever seen before. Okay, and so to me, that's why it's somewhat foolhardy when people say, well, did you see that earthquake over here? Or did you see that earthquake over there? Trust me, when this one happens, it's going to be pretty noticeable. <laughs> You're not going to have to wonder what happened, right? Okay, now let's move on to this idea of hailstones coming with this wrath. Revelation 16, 21, it says, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Dear ones, notice where it talks about the huge hailstones. It literally has to do with a talent. There's an adjective that's used. The adjective, when you talk about a talent, it's referring to something that literally weighed between 108 and 130 pounds. There was different ways that they rendered it. So literally, you're dealing with a hailstone that's about 120 pounds, let's just say on average. Well, I don't know what the terminal velocity, every object that falls, it falls, obviously, gravity is a force that's acting on it, but because of wind resistance, there's a terminal velocity. A human being, a skydiver, reaches terminal velocity typically at around 122 miles per hour. Well, I would suggest to you that a hailstone is more dense, has more wind resistance, or is more wind resistant, therefore probably falls at a very high clip. Right? So let's just hypothetically say you have a 130-pound millstone falling at you at 140 miles per hour. That's going to hurt. <laughs> That's why we, we get paid the big bucks, right, Bob? <laughs> That's not good. That's how severe it is. And that's how I was telling you that story. When I saw some bad thunderstorms in my days, I've never seen anything like that. And I can't imagine what that must be like. 
And yet, notice the reaction, the reaction of God's wrath. Oops, I, I thought I underlined it. I guess I didn't. Let me just notice on the screen it says, and men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail. Notice they don't repent. Their hard hearts are so bad. The sinful nature of man, unaided by God's spirit, even when they see this wrath come upon them, they don't soften. They don't say, Uncle, Lord, we give, we we submit ourselves to you. They blaspheme God. That's how vile the human heart is. And for those who believe in the ability of human beings to save themselves or have the ability to come to faith on their own power, this passage should once and for all, uh, there's many other passages that do, but it should put an end to it. No, men that see these things don't become soft-hearted, they become hard-hearted. It always makes me think of Romans 5 where it's the kindness of God that should lead us to repentance, isn't it? And so, yes, Eric, I'm sorry, go ahead. Actually, I have a question because yeah. I'm not as good a student as I'd like to be, but I know that there were the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and then I, I remember also, uh, were there angels that, that really were proclaiming the gospel, pro- yes. proclaiming repentance, and did that happen prior to this? It did, it so did. So they had, the, yep. everyone in the world, everyone in the world had received the, the news of repentance, everyone, right? Well said. Okay. Yes, so the 70th week of Daniel will not be without the proclamation of the gospel. You have the angel, in fact, the messenger from God, his throne room, who's proclaiming it in mid-air, it says, or mid-heaven. And uh, so, yes, there is the proclamation of the gospel throughout. And even when these people see that, they don't repent. When they see the wrath of God, they don't repent. They're hard-hearted. Yeah, yep. So that's very tragic. And one thing I want to point out is that this reference to hail is, again, something that we saw in Exodus chapter 9. Let me just read it, and I'll kind of make a connection for you. Exodus 9, 23 through 24. This is the seventh plague that came upon Egypt. It says, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very severe, such as not, such had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So we see hail again now in the bowl judgment. And remember I showed you that all of the bowl judgments often are just expanding upon what God did in Egypt, but they're very reminiscent of the plagues. And that's designed to show us this is the last exodus. The last exodus where God's enemies are judged and his people are going to be delivered. It's the last one. What God did in history, he's going to do again. He's going to throw down his enemies, and he's going to save his people. What's very interesting is, I thought of that passage in Job, Job 38. Remember when God responds to Job? And he's basically saying, when you ask me these things, and challenge me as you do, and remember God throws down the gauntlet and says, Job, have you done this? Have you seen this? Can you do what I do? Can you know what I know? And in Job 38, 22 through 23, God's responding to Job, and he says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the times of distress, for the day of war and battle? Remember, uh, Adam was just talking about how in many of these battles that happened in the Old Testament, you had the shaking and the convulsions that would occur, and it was often accompanied by hail. 
God would send upon hail upon the enemies of God that Joshua had faced. In fact, I'll leave you with that uh, slide. Yeah, it's the very next slide. So I want you to realize that this idea of hail, God pouring it upon his enemies, is again showing us that he has all power, that he has the power to save his people and to judge his enemies. And I want to make the connection to, oh, I did put an underline. I knew I put an underline. I just didn't know my correct order. I apologize for that. I got so many underlines in boxes, I can't remember where I put them all. Let me turn to this last point. And before I put up here this passage in Joshua, let me remind you of the chronological order that we're in. We are finishing Revelation 16. Okay, Revelation 16, we get the seventh bowl. There's going to be an interlude. Revelation 17 into Revelation 18, you have the destruction of Babylon. All That goes all the way until Revelation 19.10. And then when we pick it up again, the narrative continues with the judgment. The very next thing is Messiah comes. Now, here's why I'm having you get your head around this. All of this, the wrath of God, the hail, and the earthquake is connected with the coming of the Messiah. That's the next thing that you're going to see as the narrative unfolds in Revelation 19.11. Are you with me? So what that shows us then is that this hail is connected with the battle that Messiah himself is going to bring. And I want you to see this connection to what the lesser Joshua did. Remember Jesus' name, Yeshua? is really the same as Joshua's in the Old Testament. Listen to what happened when Joshua was bringing the people into the promised land. God sent hail. Joshua 10, 11, it says, As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, Yahweh threw large stones from heaven on them. Here's the enemies of God. As far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Dear ones, the lesser Joshua in the Old Testament brought the people of God into a lesser promised land and God sent hail. One day the greater Joshua, remember Joshua Yeshua means Yahweh saves, is going to come back and he's going to send hail upon the enemies as he brings us into the greater promised land, a promised land that will last forever. So again, we see that there's a pattern in Scripture and God is going to do it again. He has the power to save and the power to judge. And you and I can take great comfort in that. That even if we're perishing at the hands of our enemies, it's not the last word. God has the last word. He's going to win, and we will be saved once and for all. We will be brought to a glorious kingdom. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. And then if we, afterwards, we're out of time, but we can take more comments and questions just individually if you feel. Thank you, Lord, for showing us these cataclysmic events. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us here through Christ, through faith in him, would know that we've been spared such things. But also I ask, Lord, that these things would motivate us to live obedient lives, to make our calling and election sure, but also so that we would proclaim the gospel, that we would give, you would give us boldness, Lord, so that others may be spared these things, so that also might find you as a Lord and Savior rather than the judge and warrior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.